This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe was a radio series featuring Raymond Chandler's private eye, Philip Marlowe. The program differed from most others in the genre. It was a more hard-boiled program than many of the other private detective shows at the time, containing few quips or quaint characters. In 1948, the series moved to CBS with Gerald Moore playing Marlowe. I found it kind of interesting that Gene D. Phillips, in the book Creatures of Darkness, Raymond Chandler, Detective Fiction and Film Noir, reported that Chandler's lack of involvement with the program. Initially, Chandler had considered asking for script approval for the Marlowe radio series, but ultimately, he decided to have no connection with the scripting of the program at all. He contented himself with the weekly royalties he received for the use of his characters while professing himself moderately pleased with Gerald Moore's portrayal of Marlowe. Hmm. Wow, what a compliment for that hard-working actor. In any case, let's see what Marlowe is up to tonight in the episode entitled, Where There's a Will. When the will was read, everybody figured she'd been crazy when she wrote it. And that included me. But I changed my mind after spending a night on an island with a pig, a cat, and an ape. Because in reality, they were people. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Barlow. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's unusual story, Where There's a Will. I had spent the whole day on a noisy job which had concerned itself with a lot of people who talked a lot and said nothing. When I finally locked up my office for the night, I was worn out. As I drove slowly along the street, I was glad to be heading for home in a little peace and quiet. At least, that's what I thought. But when I pulled up for a full stop sign, only a half a block from my apartment, something happened which brought my little dream of peace and quiet to an end. A car door opposite me flew open, and something mighty excited jumped in. I'm being followed. Drive on, please. The law? No, please drive on. Okay, lady, get a good grip on the upholstery. do it. Now, what's the... Say, you look a little pale and beautiful. I'm always pale when my heart's in my mouth. Well, then why don't you swallow once, take a deep breath, and tell me who was after you? There isn't much to tell. It was a nasty little man, that's all I know. So thanks for making like Barney Oldfield, and good night. Hey, hey, not so fast. 
It's impolite to hitch and run. Look, mister, right now I'm up to my earrings in trouble, and that leaves very little time for small talk with strangers, even nice ones. Well, in that case, the name is Philip Marlowe, which takes care of the stranger part, and I'm a private detective, which makes trouble my business. Where do we go from there? No place. $300,000 worth of hidden bonds, a screwy old lady and a sculptor with a red beard are too much for any one-man police force, Mr. Marlowe. So again, good night. Before I could say anything, she was out and gone. There was only the heady scent of taboo in the air. And the memory of a gorgeous profile with jet black hair and pale blue eyes. I sighed like a schoolboy and decided to put her under the heading of things that pass in the night. But I couldn't. Why out of all the cars in Los Angeles should she have picked on mine? Well, the next morning, as I was walking down the corridor to my office door, I was still seeing pale blue eyes. Maybe that's why I didn't notice the man who waited outside my door until I was almost on top of him. He was well-dressed and about 35. He looked like a man who had forgotten how to smile. Marlowe. Right. I want to compliment you on your behavior last night, Mr. Marlowe. Barbara told me about it. Oh? Come on in, Mr. Uh... Shields. Edward Shields. Would you be interested in aiding three people in a search for more than a quarter of a million dollars in negotiable bonds, one percent of which will be yours if the bonds are found? Uh, being a fairly fast man with figures, yes. Yes, I would. Splendid. I'd like a few details. Well, Mr. Marlowe, my aunt, Bernice Mayhew Shaw, died, leaving her entire fortune to charity, with the exception of the bonds I mentioned. Those are to be divided equally among three of us, the sole heirs, if we find them within 24 hours. Hmm, that sounds like something you dream about after a midnight snack of pizza and pig's knuckles. Perhaps. But you didn't know my aunt. Beside myself, the beneficiaries are Barbara Haynes, the girl you met last night. She was Aunt Bernice's personal secretary. And another nephew, Harlan Crane, who, at the moment, happens to be a sculptor. Happens to be? Six months ago, he was a sailor. Before that, a <laughs> writer. Without even a rejection slip to his name. My cousin is irresponsible, impetuous, and completely self indulgent uh, The will itself, Mr. Shields, what are the exact conditions? At precisely noon today, the three of us are to meet with Luther Willard, my beloved aunt lawyer, who will give us each a large sheet of tissue paper covered with specific markings. Individually, the sheets mean absolutely nothing. But combined, one over the other, the transparent sheets form a coherent map to the location of the bond. But uh, why all the intrigue? My... Dear departed aunt had a peculiar sense of humor. In addition to this, she was never particularly fond of any of us. She was sure that our individual shortcomings would make cooperation among us impossible, even for so short a period as 24 hours. And the fact that a man followed Miss Haynes last night convinced you that there was something to that, huh? Convinced me? No. He may have been nothing but a purse snatcher. Nevertheless, I do feel that to play safe a fourth party, a custodian of the map, so to speak, would be advisable. That's fine. When do I go to work, Mr. Shields? At noon, at the lawyer's office. However, I regret that first you must be approved by the third heir. I don't like to ask this, Mr. Marlowe, but would you mind very much calling on my cousin, Harlan, personally? Not at all. As a matter of fact, I think he might prove very interesting. Yes. I'm sure he will. As interesting as an ape in the zoo. <laughs> I felt like saying, look, Shields, I'm not as gullible as I look. But then I thought a client's a client, and I decided to play along. 
Alan Crane, six-foot, red-bearded giant, talked as he worked, wielding a ten-pound sculptor's mallet like it was an 18th-century quill. I'll be frank with you, Marlowe. Money isn't everything to me and never has been. Over a hundred thousand dollars will buy a lot of marble. Half the state of Vermont, I'd say. But come to the point, Mr. Crane. Do I get your seal of approval? Oh, I imagine you'll be all right. Anyone who can get by shields, the all-American Scrooge ought to do. Thanks, a million. But not being personal where you're concerned. It's just a matter of facing a fact bluntly. Edward Shields is conniving, avaricious, and dull. I heartily recommend him to nobody. And the girl, Barbara, you feel the same way about her? No, I don't. And the truth of the matter, Marlowe, is that I know very little about Barbara Haynes. But what I do know, I like very much. Yeah, that I can understand. Well, do you realize that once you have the whole map in your possession, you're worth an awful lot of money? Of course I do. The whole map, I have a market value of exactly $300,000. <laughs> That's right, fellow. $300,000, dead or alive. <laughs> I know it was small of me, but I didn't exactly see the joke. And things got less funny as time went on. Later, as me and my trio got off the elevator at the lawyer's office, old Luther Willard, Aunt Bernice's attorney, was waiting for us, so excited he could hardly talk. I, I've been held up. What? what? Uh, a little man. He wanted the map. He a little man? The... Dark complexion? Yes, yes. Had a scar on the side of his neck. How he... are the maps all right? Hmm? The maps? Oh, yes, yes, they're all right. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, everybody. Give him a chance. Mr. Willard, tell us exactly what happened. Uh, this is Mr. Marlowe. We told you about him, Mr. Willard. Uh, of course, yes. yes. Uh, come into my office. Uh, you see, I was putting some papers into my safe when this little man stepped up behind me and demanded the maps. Uh, were they in the safe? No, no, thank heavens. Uh, make yourselves comfortable. The please. maps, Mr. Willard. Where are they now? Oh, well, right here where they were all the time. Here under the blusher on my desk. <laughs> Clever of me, wasn't it? <laughs> Wax seals. Still intact. I'll take all three of them right now, Mr. Willard. That is, if there are no objections. <clears throat> all right, then I guess we can be on our way. Hold on, Mr. Marlowe. There are still two things you people must know. First, in the event the bonds are not recovered within the 24 hours, I am instructed to open another sealed envelope, which I am happy to report is kept in my bank vault. That envelope contains a complete and simplified map and is to be turned over to a designated charity. And second, if any of you die... Before the allotted time is up, the bonds are to be divided among the surviving persons. And if none of us survives, Mr. Willard? Why, in that case, the bonds again go to charity. You see, Harlan, your aunt was a very generous woman. After arranging to meet with the three heirs at Shields Place later that afternoon, I headed for the nice and public public library where I figured I'd be able to examine the maps in safety. By placing the three maps exactly one over the other, I saw that the bonds were hidden on the larger of two squares of land called Twin Islands, which were the personal property of the late Bernice Mayhew Shaw, and located in Indian Lake in the San Bernardino Mountains. As I left the library with the three maps in my pocket, I, I felt like a well-fed mallet on the opening day of hunting season. Then I knew I was being called. I slipped into a doorway and turned. I saw it was the nasty little man with a scar. All right, you, we're through playing tag. Oh, well, let me go. Not yet, Shorty, not until you talk loud and clear. No, no, don't hit me, please. 
Please help me down. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you everything. All right. If you're sure you can get it all straight the first time, <clears throat> there. Now, the whole story, beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. Yeah, like you say, whole story. Okay. Start like this. Oh! time I figured out that it had been the sawed-off end of a broomstick that had slammed my stomach up against my backbone, the little man was out of sight. Another five minutes went by before I quit calling myself sucker and I started to think straight. The nearest public locker was in the Santa Fe Trailways bus depot on Cahuenga. I went up there and deposited two-thirds of the map for safekeeping until we were ready to leave for Indian Lake. And I found a telephone, and a half a dozen calls later, I knew that a caretaker named Jumbo was the sole inhabitant of Twin Islands. And my last call was to him. I wanted some kind of a welcoming committee ready for us. When I left the phone booth, it was only one o'clock. So I returned to my apartment where I figured I'd rest until three. When we were all to meet at Shield's place. But that was my second mistake. Because the moment I closed my apartment door, I was positive I wasn't going to get much rest. I had an unannounced visitor. Yeah, you look surprised, Mr. Marlowe. I am. I didn't recognize you at first without your broomstick. I traded that in on this 22 target pistol here. It's more expensive, but it's better. Makes me as big as you are. Maybe bigger. Yeah, but how much does it do for your personality? Quite a bit. Gives me poise. And poise gives me manners. So in asking for that map in your pocket, I'll even say please. Come on, Milo. I won't say please twice. No, I don't think you would. Here. Thank you. Now, before I go, one more thing. The hall outside here is straight and narrow, right to the stairs, and that makes it fine for shooting. So after I step out, don't do anything rash. For a while. <laughs> So, loving life as I do, I didn't do anything rash for a while. In fact, I could have whipped up a nice seven-minute frosting before I moved at all. And I phoned the three heirs to get together at my apartment. When I finally had them all seated in front of me, I related the saga of the little man. Including my premonition that one of the three present was signing his paychecks. Of course, I got nothing but Cupid doll innocence out of any of them. So after adding that we'd get underway just as soon as the missing one-third of the map was returned to me, I threw my trench coat over my arm and told them I was going for a walk. But before leaving them, I reminded them that whoever was behind the little man could fire him. Because I would never have kept all three maps in one place anyway, unless all of the heirs were on hand to watch one another. Then I left. I hadn't walked more than a half a block up Franklin when I stopped at the sound of Barbara running after me. Phil, I'm scared. Harlan and Shields are acting like a couple of wild men, calling each other every name under the sun. What'd you expect? Chit-chat about the weather? I quit acting like a bobby soxer within squealing distance of Sinatra and try a cigarette. It'll calm your... What is it, Phil? Why are you smiling like that? What's wrong? Nothing's wrong, Barbara. Nothing. <laughs> it's just that I found this in the pocket of my trench coat when I went for my cigarettes. It's the map. That's right. The missing third. It's back already. When that missing third part of the map turned up so fast, I figured the heirs had decided to play ball. 
But I made a mental note to keep my eyes on them anyway. At 3 o'clock, I went to Edward Shields' hillside house in Laurel Canyon for the scheduled meeting. Shields wasn't home yet. But Cousin Harlan was there, admiring the view. Barbara showed up a few minutes later in her convertible, and Shields arrived last by cab. It finally began to look as though we might actually start out all together. Well, I see we all arrived safe and sound. Yeah, disappointed. Only by your clumsy attempts at humor, Harlan. Stop it, boys. Let's get started. Phil, have you looked at the map? Where are we going? To Indian Lake. It's a four-hour drive, so if you're all ready, I suggest we get started. Very well. I'll go up to the garage and get the car. So Aunt Bernice hid the bonds in a roost at Twin Island, eh? Well, well, well. Nobody seemed surprised at the location Aunt Bernice had chosen to hide her bonds. And Holland, Barbara, and I stood on the front porch watching Shields as he climbed the very steep driveway to his garage in the car. But Barbara got more of my attention than Shields. Ah, she made a mighty dreamy picture. She leaned casually back against the rail of the porch. She wasn't aware that I was watching her. And I suddenly saw her go tense, her eyes filled with fear, and I quickly turned to follow her stare. Shields' car was going at a rapid clip down the steep driveway. I still couldn't figure out Barbara's concern, and then she started screaming. The car's out of control. The car was headed for the edge of a cliff. His brakes are out. He'll go over. The tree. The tree stopped him. Shields, are you hurt? No, no, I'm all right. The brakes. I, I tried to stop him. He hadn't hit that tree. Shields has gone over the edge. Let's have a look at those brakes, Shields. Well, no wonder. What is it? Brake lines broken. Every drop of fluid drained out. I might have been killed. No might about it, Shields. We stood there for a while, all looking at one another, but nothing was said. Brake lines rarely snap accidentally. I remembered that Holland had been at Shields' house early, and the car had been in the garage, and Barbara... Well, I had to admit that she actually had anticipated the car going out of control... Well, the 24 hours for finding the bonds were slipping by, and I knew we had to get to Indian Lake. We held a short powwow without passing the peace pipe, and we decided to take Barbara's car. We picked up the rest of the map, which I'd checked at the bus station, and we shoved off. After a four-hour drive that was about as relaxing as the thought of an overdue time bomb in a day nursery, we finally pulled up to the shores of Indian Lake. Jumbo, the caretaker, was waiting at the dock. He knew how to handle a boat, and a few minutes later, we could see Twin Islands. We headed for the smaller of the two, where I could make out a rambling lodge. The other island, a quarter of a mile away, seemed deserted. Shields was the first one ashore. Here, Barbara, let me help you. Run along, boy. I'll help Barbara. Thanks, Harlan. Well, Marlo, what now? Well, first we go up to the house. Oh, Jumbo, you got everything ready for us? Hey, Jumbo. Huh? Oh, oh, sure, sure, everything's ready, Mr. It's like you said, I opened four of the upstairs rooms. Open the rooms? We're not going to sleep out here, are we? I'm going to try. But this isn't a vacation. We're here to find the bonds and get out. You realize it's almost nine already? That leaves us just 15 hours, Marlowe. Yeah, I know. I got a good watch and I count to 24 and I'm also giving orders to Don't you three. Don't get high-handed, Marlowe. You're an employee of ours and that's all. Let's get the map together and start looking for those bonds right now. Take it easy, big man. The bonds are hidden on the other island. The map is as tangled as a second-hand spider web. Wouldn't get anything at all down in the dark. That's your opinion. Look, you I... people hired me to help you find those bonds. If I have to get nasty to make you take orders, I can do that too. Now let's play like we're smart and go up to the lodge and relax. All right, Marlon. But remember, we'd better have those bonds by tomorrow. 
Or someone else will be nasty. Very nasty. And I mean me. What? You too? Getting the three heirs settled down at dinner table was quite a chore. And when I was sure they'd keep an eye on each other, I slept outside. I hid one-third of the map in a drain pipe. Then I went upstairs to my room, and I hid another third in the window shade. Now the maps were settled, and I began to think about other things, like... like the accident to Shields' car. There were too many accidents and coincidences to suit me. So I decided to drop in on Cousin Holland's room to see what I could see. After 15 fruitless minutes, I was about to leave when... something in the wastebasket caught my eye. The corner of a half-hidden handkerchief monogrammed H.C., I had just picked it up when I saw Jumbo standing in the open door. A handkerchief there in your hand. That blood on it? No. Now it looks more like brake fluid. And in this case, it's practically the same thing, huh? I think we'll leave it right here in the wastebasket, Jumbo. Oh, did you want something? Just wanted to say I'll be in my own place out back if you want me. Okay. You know where Mr. Shields is? He's out in the veranda. Alone? Yeah. Thanks, Jumbo. If I need anything, I'll call you. Good night. Shields. Oh, oh it's you, Marlowe. What's wrong? You sound like a man expecting trouble. <laughs> I was nearly killed in my car this afternoon, and I don't think that was the end of it. Yeah, and don't stand too close to high windows. Thank you. It's comforting to know that I am not alone in my suspicions. Maybe, uh... How are you betting? On the beauty or the beast? Don't be absurd. I hope someday to marry Barbara. Yeah? Well, a guy might be beating your time right now with a sculptor's mallet. You may be naive, Mr. Marlowe, but Barbara isn't. I saw them just a moment ago walking down to the boathouse. Harlan's galloping after her like a half-baked idiot, as usual. But if Miss Haynes prefers me, what can he do about it? There was an answer for that, but it seemed a little obvious under the circumstances. Well, a few minutes later, Shields went inside, and I made a beeline for the boathouse to watered down a certain hot-headed sculptor named Harlan. When I got within earshot, I knew I'd be as welcome as whooping cough at a glassblower's convention. So I stopped and listened. Barbara, darling, I'm falling in love with you. You know that, don't you? Let me hold you close. Harlan, I... Oh, Harlan. This is real, Barbara. For the first time in my life, I'm truly in love. I want to do things for you, make you happy. Please wait. I'm not completely free. There are still ties with Edward, you know. Shields. That fat, stingy babbit. He's no man for you. Why, if he so much as touches you from now on up. Wait a minute, Barbara. Marla, you cheap snooping eaves up of this trapping some minor vice compared to some of the shenanigans going on around here. Just what do you mean by that? A word to the wise is sufficient. You, I'll give a few more. Now, somebody's trying to cut our little triangle down to two sides before noon tomorrow. What I've seen so far, I don't like, so I'm warning everybody. Just what are you accusing me of? Well, Harlan, stop it. Don't be a fool. Will you cavemen control yourselves until those bonds are found? Come on, Harlan, let's go in. Good night, Marlowe. Don't get your head caught in any transoms. Deciding sleep wouldn't be very healthy for a man in my position, I decided to sit up that night. It was about two o'clock when I looked out the window and saw something mighty interesting. A light was moving on the other island opposite us. 
I got hold of Jim Horn and ran over there as fast as we could. Yeah, we're beach. That light's dead ahead, Mr. Marlowe. Looks to me like it's up in the picnic shelter. Yeah, I'll see you later, Jumbo. There. Guess who? Oh, Marlowe. I didn't hear you come up. The wind's too strong, I guess. I'm glad to see you. Spooky here all alone. Oh, sure, sure. What's the idea? Decide to do a little freelance prospecting? Oh, that's right. Bernice Mayhew loved this spot. And I had a hunch she hid the bonds here in the base of this table. Oh, I guess I was wrong. Oh, come on, Marlowe. Limber up. You can't blame me for trying. Listen, beautiful. Don't flap your eyelashes at me. I can't see anything but double crosses right now. All right, if you've had your fun, let's go back to the lodge, It'll huh? will be that way, Phil. Phil, the sun will be coming up in two or three hours. Why not wait for it here with me? Bravo. Baby, don't burn up too many calories with that routine. Because I only keep one-third of the map on me. You think you're so smart. Right ideas hatching that cute little brain of yours, too. Now let's... Oh, Comes the gun with a pearl handle, no less. Stay away from me, Marlowe. Over there. Hey, what's going on here, anyway? Jumbo! Look out, Jumbo! When Jumbo stepped into the light and Barbara turned. I made a swipe at a gun hand that knocked pistol person lamp all over the picnic shelter. I found the gun and gave it to Jumbo. Then I started to pick up an assortment of knickknacks that had spilled out of a purse. But I never finished. Because one of the items made my eyes pop. It was the monogrammed handkerchief covered with brake fluid that I'd found in Holland's room. It all made sense now. It tied up everything that I'd suspected right along. Only two of my trio had planned to split up the $300,000 worth of bonds from the first. As I ran for the motor launch, I yelled at Jumbo to bring Barbara over in the rowboat. All the way back, I had the panicky feeling that I was probably too late. But when I sneaked in the front door of the lodge, there were still two voices, and they came from the open kitchen door. My hand on my gun, I edged along the wall and peeked in. Seals, you're a fool. Perhaps. But I'm going to kill you and have a perfect case of self-defense. What are you talking about? Your hopelessly framed cousin, Harlan. I ruined the brakes on my own car. I planted your handkerchief, stained with brake fluid in your room. Marlowe found it. He's convinced that you tried to kill me. He's also convinced that he was brought into this whole thing by coincidence. He doesn't know that he was deliberately involved in our search for the bonds, just so he'd make a reputable witness. You're out of your mind. Not at all. I'm going to kill you and say it was self-defense. Marlowe will testify that you tried to kill me before. What Marlowe's going to do is blow your head off if you don't drop that gun, Shields. Marlowe. Yeah, Marlowe. Who knows he wasn't brought into this thing by coincidence, but he stuck around to see the fireworks and almost saw them just now. Phil, what's happened? Barbara, couldn't you hold Marlowe on the other island? You shut up, Shields. Barbara's little mistake was that she should have gotten rid of Holland's handkerchief after she took it out of his room so he wouldn't see it. Barbara, I don't understand. You, you... Planned all this with Seals against me? Well, I, I did in the beginning, Harlan, but I changed my mind when I fell in love with you. I, I let Marlowe find the handkerchief in my purse. I, I wanted him to stop, Edward. Oh, darling, don't you Come see... Come on, that... Miss Bankhead, cut the dramatics. The show's over. Let's have it straight, huh? All right. We might as well if we're going to find those bonds before it's too late. Edward and I did plan it. We even hired the little man who tried to get the maps from you. And when that didn't work, you planned to get rid of Holland and split the 300 grand. So we failed. So what? We're right back where we started. A hundred thousand apiece. Now let's go find those bonds. Not so fast, beautiful. What happened to Holland just now was a little more serious than a hot foot. It was attempted murder. He can slap you two in the jug this minute if he wants to. But I'll leave it up to him. 
Okay, Harlan, what do you say? It's your move. No. I've got a better idea. Marlowe, one third of that map is mine. Give it to me. Okay. There it is. Harlan, what are you going to do? Harlan, no. Don't burn it. There. Now we all lose. Now none of us will get the bonds. That's probably how Aunt Bernice wanted it anyway. It was almost noon. I was standing on the veranda of the lodge and a scrawny old crow was perched up on the roof. I saw Barbara and Shields quietly pull away in a boat with Jumbo. I saw Holland lumbering off to the far end of the island to sulk. And as I watched the three of them, I couldn't help thinking. A pig in a pinstripe suit, an ape with a red beard, and an alley cat in nylon. <coughs> Keep laughing, Aunt Bernice, you were right. Greed, treachery, and rashness don't mix, even for 24 hours. And the 1% of the bonds I was to get? Well, that's my contribution to charity. Who knows? Maybe I can take it off my income tax. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Featured in tonight's story were Mary Ship, Harley Bear, Don Diamond, Ted Von Elts, and Wilms Herbert. The special music was conceived and conducted by Richard O'Rant. Be sure to be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... When I got the crisp $50 bill in advance, I figured my client had a heart of gold. But after I was beat up, double-crossed, and shot at, I realized just how hard a heart of gold could be. Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, John Dixon Carr, three great names in the world of mystery and thrills. One down, two to go today on CBS. Now that you've heard Raymond Chandler's Philip Marlowe in action, CBS invites you to hear Dashiell Hammett's Sam Spade in action tonight, followed by John Dixon Carr's personally written radio series, Cabin B-13. Chandler, Hammett, Carr, today and every Sunday, over most of these CBS stations. It's a mystery if you miss them. Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Stay tuned for Fibber McGee and Molly next on Theater of the Mind. You're listening to Theater of the Mind on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. And now, here's Fibber McGee and Molly in the hilarious episode, Quarantined with Measles. The Johnson Wax program with Fibber McGee and Molly. (laughs) 
The makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat present Fibber McGee and Molly, written by Don Quinn, with music by the King's Men and Billy Mills Orchestra. The show opens with Love Is. My floors could be as beautiful as Mrs. Clark's, as rich-looking. Pardon me, madam, but your floors can be as beautiful as anybody's if you'll polish them regularly with genuine Johnson's wax. I know, because I've watched many floors that look dull and lifeless become gleaming, beautiful floors under the magic touch of Johnson's paste or liquid wax. In fact, they seem to take on more beauty with every waxing. And, of course, the tough coat of wax protects the finish against scratches, stains, and wear, and cuts housework way down because dust and dirt cannot cling to a smooth, waxed surface. And did you know that smart housekeepers have discovered over 100 extra uses for genuine Johnson's wax? They wax windowsills, furniture, picture frames, woodwork, Venetian blinds, leather goods. Well, you'll find these 100 extra uses listed right on the Johnson's wax package. And before I forget, you can now buy Johnson's wax in three forms, the familiar paste and liquid form, plus the new cream wax, especially formulated for furniture and woodwork. Last week, a quarantine of measles bottled up the cream of Wistful Vista society in the McGee home. During the week that has just passed, the cream has soured considerably. (laughs) And here at 79 Wistful Vista, just one big unhappy family, we find a number of unwilling guests and Fibber McGee and Molly. The doctor hasn't given permission to anybody to leave yet. Well, by George, I'm leaving anyway. My business is going to rack and ruin while I... Take your hand off of that doorknob, Mr. Gildersleeve, or you'll regret it. We'll all regret it. I won't do it. I've been cooped up here for a week, and I'm going to leave right now. Don't you dare open that door, Gildersleeve. I will, too. Got to straighten out that closet one of these days. Why didn't you tell me this was a closet? Say, you've been here a week. You should have known. Besides, I don't know why you're worried about your old factory. Your wife has taken charge of the Gildersleeve Girdle Company. Oh, what do women know about girdles? (laughs) Plenty if they got the proper foundation. And background. <laughs> I don't... Mr. McGee, when, oh, when are we going to get out of this horrible house? Oh. oh, so this house is horrible, is it? Now, you listen to me, Abigail Uppington. Yeah. I don't mind your sleeping in my bed or using my vanishing cream and my bobby pin. But when you say this is a horrible house, I agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> I've never spent such a week in my life. Life? Has this only been one life? But when can we leave, Mr. McGee? Surely they can't legally keep us chained up here like wild beasts. Yes. Who's a wild beast? (laughs) 
If the fur fits, wear it, Gildersleeve. Uh, I'm sure it can't be much longer, Mrs. Duffington. We're just as anxious to have you leave as you are to go. McGee, may I have a private word with you, dearie? Why, sure. You mind if we have a minute alone, folks? If by alone you mean without me, McGee, you can have 3,000 years of it. Come on, Abigail. Let's go and sneer at their photograph album again. (laughs) What's the matter, Molly? Look, Hmm? we've all been getting in each other's hair here for a solid week. And the doctor hasn't been back once. I know, but he called me up right after he left, though. That night we got quarantined. Well, what'd he say? I can't remember. It was some big medical word. You know how doctors are. Heavenly days. If they quarantined doctors, too, they they wouldn't be so anxious to keep people locked up like this. Where is everybody, dearie? Oh, they're down in the basement. Boomer and Wilcox and the old-timer got a poker game going. Oh, they have, have they? Mm-hmm. It wasn't enough that I was running a boarding house in the hospital. Now I got a gambling joint on my hand. <laughs> oh, Molly, they're not doing any harm. Just the same, I'm not going to have my home turned into any Monte Cristo. <laughs> you mean Monte Carlo. Monte Cristo was a count. Well, then he should have had more manners than to turn somebody's home into a gambling joint. <laughs> he didn't gamble. He was just a guy in a book. Oh, he ran a book, too. <laughs> Well, that's all I wanted to know. You go in and see how the little girl is getting along, McGee. And if you hear a riot downstairs, that's me breaking up the poker game. Mm Mm-hmm. Goodbye, Mrs. Chips. (laughs) Hi, Mr. McGee. Hi there, sis. How's everything? You got enough blankets or too many? Is the window open enough or too much? Is it too light in here or too dark? Yes. Huh? Hey, will you tell me a story, Mr. McGee? Will you please? Will you? No, okay, but now you you, you stay tucked in bed there. I, I don't want you to catch cold. Now, what story do you want me to tell you? Goldilocks, I bet you. Goldilocks, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. Once upon a time, there was a beautiful little girl named Goldilocks, and one day she started to take her grandmother a basket of delicious pies and cakes and sandwiches. I'm hungry. <laughs> huh? I'm hungry. Can I please have something to eat, Mr. McGee, please? No, I guess so, sis. Uh, how about an apple? Make you nice and strong to eat apples. Do you like Superman, hmm? Yeah. Hey, will you get the paper and read me about Superman, Mr. McGee? Oh, for the... Okay, okay. Anything to anything to please. Here's the paper. Let's see where it's... Oh, here it is. Oh. Today, Superman is fighting for his life among the gangs that have mushroomed up in... Have what, mister? Mushroomed. I'm hungry. <laughs> Look, will you make up your mind? First you want a story, and then you want something to eat. Now, which will it be? A story. Okay. Shall I tell you about the Pied Piper of Hamlin? Who's he? Well, he was a guy who got rid of all the rats by playing his flute. Oh, gee, I love flute. Stood flute and flute gel and... <laughs> That's fruit. And we haven't got any. And furthermore, if I detect any... I like detectives, too. Will you please read me about Dick Tracy? I thought you wanted something to eat. I know it. Well... That's why I want you to read me about Dick Tracy. I just eat that up, I bet you. Now, all right. Well, it says here that Dick Tracy is on the trail of a crook that's just taken it on the land. On the what? Land. I'm hungry. <laughs> I don't care how hungry you are, Dad Braddock. You're going to get Dick Tracy and like it. 
Oh, now, wait a minute, sis. I, I'm sorry. I, I guess I'm just kind of on edge. Yeah. After all this quarantine. <laughs> Excuse me for hollering at you, will you? Okay, mister. Oh, thanks. <laughs> the idea. Big bloke like me shouting at a little kid like you. Yeah. <laughs> Sick with the measles. I ought to be ashamed. I sure you had a bitch. Well, I am. Now, now, which do you want, honey? A story or something to eat? A story. Fine. And just so as I won't arouse any gastronomic yearnings in your little corpus delecti, <laughs> I'll try and tell you one that ain't connected in any way with something to eat. Hi. Now, here we go. <laughs> little Jack Horner sat in the corner eating his Christmas... <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a boy named Jack who lived with his poor old mother. And one day, he went to town and stole the cow, and all he got for it was a handful of... <laughs> Little Miss Muppet sat on a tuffet, eating... <laughs> Simple Simon met a pot. Mary had a little... <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a little girl named Cinderella. Aha, now I got it. And one day, a fairy princess came to her and said she could go to the ball. And Cinderella said, yes, yeah, but how will I get there? Yeah, <laughs> and the fairy princess made her a coach out of a big, juicy pumpkin. Yeah. I'm hungry. Be reasonable, will you? Chucks, I didn't impose this quarantine, and I don't... Well, for scream's sake, Fisher, I'm asking you once and for always, and my bended elbows with tears in my face. How long can this quantum cream last? Well... I'm getting so I hate everybody around here, including me, which I don't like, because I was always admired me very much, if you can understand that, and if not, I hate you, too. Well, believe me, Nick, I'm sorry. I wouldn't have had this happen for the world, but it did, and we got to make the best of it. Can't you amuse yourself anyway? Can't you... Touches, for instance? What? 
Well, do some crossword puzzles. No, sir. No crossword puzzles for me, Fisher. Too much exercise, I'm thinking. What do you mean? There isn't any exercise to working crossword puzzles. Oh, sure there is. Huh? First, you lay down on the floor and do a word. Then you're standing up and doing a word. Then you're lying down and doing one. But why? Because that is what it is saying to do. Huh? Horizontal pull, perpendicular, horizontal pull, perpendicular. <laughs> up and down, up and down, all day long. <laughs> that being any way to do a puzzle, I've got a crossword for it that will make your hair stand on its hind feet. <laughs> if I don't get out of here before long, I'll be payload if I come out. Well, I know it takes all kinds of people to make a world, but sometimes I think they went to extremes. Ah, there you are, McGee. I've looked all over the house, and I can't find anybody. No, and if I'd have seen you coming, you wouldn't have found me. <laughs> are you getting as tired of me as I am of you, Gildersleeve? At least, McGee. <laughs> as soon as this quarantine is lifted, if it ever is, I'm going to move to San Francisco or someplace. I never want to see your face again. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's exactly the way I feel about you. I'm getting so I detest you. I know. I despise you, too. <laughs> it's a good thing we're friends, chum. But this would end up in hard feelings. <laughs> I'll say so. It's nice we can hate each other in a sort of a chummy sort of a way. <laughs> yes, indeed. But where is everybody, McGee? Hi, George, if you kept me here and let the rest of them go no, home, no, I'll... Now, 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 don't get your teeth in a turmoil, Gildersleeve. Everybody's down in the basement. What for? Well, they had a poker game going down there, but Molly went down to bust it up. <laughs> She's probably got them all locked in the coal bin by now. <laughs> Come on, let's get out. Yeah, all right, McGee. How many cards for you, Glow Coat? Three, Boomer. <laughs> Give me two, Horatio. Two for me, too. Here you are, my little Toscanini. How many for you? None. I'm standing pat. Well, Mrs. Uppington, you opened. What are you doing? The membership fee for this round will be three blue ones. I can't be in there. Hey, uh, do you mind if I put in five more? I seem to have so many. I'm out. Well, see you, daughter. I don't think you got them. Mr. Boomer? Sorry, my dear, I'm out. I'm shy two feathers on a bobtail swan. <laughs> uh, I'm going to call you, Mrs. McGee. But why? I'm right here. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, let's see your cards. Oh, sure. <laughs> but they don't amount to anything, really. <laughs> I was bluffing. <laughs> All I got is a five spot and four ones. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> <laughs> Is that good? <laughs> hey, what's going on here? I thought you were going to bust up this game, Molly. Believe me, she did, Skee-Ball. Huh? You've heard about the chicken in every pot. Well, she's the chicken. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful, dearie? Look at all the pretty chips I've won. I'm going to punch holes through them and string them uh, together for a necklace. No, 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 no. Don't do that. Cash them in. They're worth money. Don't be silly. They were only worth $1.98 when we bought them. And I even doubt if the drugstore would take them back. No. Didn't anybody else want anything? How about you, Wilcox? Did oh, you oh, I'm not hurt much. I just like to play. Useful to me in my business. Yeah. Well, how can that be, Mr. Wilcox? I wish you hadn't asked that question, Uppy. It's just like waving a bull in front of a red rag. <laughs> well, I've always had a suspicion that poker was invented by a salesman for Johnson's self-polishing glow coat. Yeah, now, you see what you've done, Uppy? Well, uh, explain yourself, Mr. Wilcox. All right, look. Suppose a housewife has a full house, and somebody spills a tray on the kitchen linoleum. Uh... Does she raise the deuce? Oh, 
Not if she's got Johnson's self-polishing glow coat on the floor. It's aces when it comes to protecting and beautifying linoleum. And it takes very little jack. <laughs> and what's more, it puts old-fashioned floor scrubbing in the discard. Oh. Call your dealer today. <laughs> But that ain't the way I heard it. The way I heard it, one feller said, tell the feller, say, say. Any of you kids got a good joke to fill in here, Will? Say, if you haven't got a joke, why did you start that thing? Uh, don't give me that, Johnny. I've heard you start a whole show without one. <laughs> hey, we gonna play any more rummy, kids? Oh, Mr. Oldtimer, we haven't been playing rummy. We've been playing poker. Hey, we have. No wonder I ain't been having any luck. <laughs> what I want to know is, when are we going to get out of here? Now, what did the doctor say, McGee? Oh, you heard what the doctor said, Gildersleeve. Anyway, what are you squawking about? You ain't any worse off than the rest of us. No, that's Certainly right. Certainly not, dull, dark, and dumpy. Matter of fact, I'm thinking of starting suit against McGee for making me miss an important board meeting. What do you mean, starting suit against me? What board meeting did you miss? Show you in just a minute, chisel chin. I have the notice right here in my pocket. Notice, notice, notice. Had it here just a minute ago. Where did I put that notice? I think I shall start suit myself for false imprisonment, malicious mischief, and sleeping on the ironing board. Quiet, Abigail, my dear. <laughs> I'm trying to find the notice. That meeting. Here's an income tax blank. Got me in the middle there. If I don't show the source of my income, I go to prison. If I do show it, I go to jail. <laughs> Here's a Confederate hundred-dollar bill. What good is a Confederate bill? You can't spend it. I can spend this one, my boy. I was a Confederate in a bank robbery. Yes, <laughs> Now, let me see. Here's a small package of sleeping powder. Go on, that's a blackjack. Don't be crude, liver lips. <laughs> Here's a postcard from Sheila the shoplifter. Says she tried to get away with an accordion, but it squealed on her. <laughs> Letter from my brother, McClellan Boomer, the portrait painter, unfortunate fellow. Oh, what happened to him, Mr. Boomer? He sat down on his pallet. Poor lad. <laughs> yes, indeed. I always said he'd get caught with his paints down. <laughs> a check for short beer. Well, well, imagine that. No notice of the board meeting. What board meeting was it, Boomer? The parole board, Scrimshank. <laughs> Oh, well, there wasn't much choice anyway. They're a measly bunch, too. The King's Men sing, there's a tavern in the town. I went strolling in the cold night air. I met Nellie with the flaxen hair. She was brokenhearted and a tear was in her eye. When I tried to comfort her, she gave me this reply. There is a tavern in the town, in the town, and there my true love sits him down, sits him down where he can drink his wine mid laughter free, and never, never thinks of me. He left me for a damsel dark, damsel dark, on Tuesday night they always spark, always spark, and now my love, who once was true to me, takes that dark damsel on his knee. Fairly well, for I must leave thee. Do not let the parting grieve thee. Just remember that the best of friends must part, must part. <laughs> 
What isn't bad? Well, look, there's seven people here besides us. All of them eating and sleeping at our expense. So I figured if I charged them a nominal five bucks a piece a day, that comes to $245 bucks a week. Why, McGee, you can't charge them for staying here. They couldn't help it. Well, Dad Rattled, I couldn't help it either. Well, then it's even. Okay, so it is even. So I'll split the difference and make it two and a half a day. <laughs> That'll come to a hundred two of Oh, McGee, huh? stop it. Why, that's taking advantage of people when they're helpless. Well, shucks. That's the best time, ain't it? <laughs> now, just the same, I won't let you do it now. We're all quarantined here together, and we just got to make the best of it. Yeah, but think of the expense. We're going to have a grocery bill that'll make the defense program look like matching pennies. <laughs> Why, when you stop to think Pardon of it... The... may I have a word that you please? Yes. Why, certainly, Mrs. Uppington. Do come in. What's the trouble? Mrs. McGee, I demand to know how long we are to be incarcerated here. Now you look here, Uppy. We don't like to be incapacitated here any more than you do. But a quarantine is a quarantine. You don't want the measles to spread all over town, do you? You don't want to start an epidermis, do you? You mean hypodermic, McGee. He means epidemic. Well, then what's epidermis? Epidermis refers to the skin. That's what I said. You, you want to skin out of here and spread the measles all over town? <laughs> I wish to do no such thing, Mr. McGee, and I bitterly resent the insinuation. But I do demand, as an American citizen... See your papers. Papers? Yes, your citizenship papers. Why? Why, you speak as if I were an ordinary immigrant. Look, Uppy, the only Americans that ain't immigrants, or descended from immigrants, are Indians. And you wouldn't know a teepee from a toupee. <laughs> so don't give us that Mayflower malarkey. <laughs> I have never been so insulted in all my life. Oh. Uh, you must have led a pretty sheltered life, Abigail. 
But I agree with you that we ought to find out hey, how long Fibber, this course... how long is this going on? How can I sell Johnson's wax when I'm locked up in here? That's exactly what I wish to know, Mr. Wilcox. Oh, yeah? Well, when did you start selling Johnson's wax, Uppy? I did not claim to sell Johnson's hey, wax. Hey, I scream sake, Fizzer. How long is it going to be until I can have a re-onion with my wife and kidneys? <laughs> That's what I want to know, Pepper. Me too, I betcha. No. Oh, for goodness sakes, little girl. You get right back in bed then. Yes, you'll catch yeah. your death of cold, sis. I'm hungry. <laughs> hey, now, look here, Johnny. I've missed five rumble lessons since I've been here, and I want to get it going. Oh, yeah. Well, what can we do? Well, Mr. McGee, what do you propose to do about this situation? I'll tell you what we're going to do, folks. I'm just as anxious as you are to know how long they quarantine for measles. I'm going to call the health department. Well, yeah, well, right. Hello. All right, dearie. Here's the phone. Thanks. Hello, operator. Give me the health department. Oh, is that you, Mert? Oh, that's all. Oh. <laughs> How's every little thing, Mert? Yeah, we're quarantined. What's that, Mert? Your brother. Oh, the one that works in the airplane plant? Caught a spy, eh? Heavenly days, how thrilling. Oh, I don't know. He knocked over his lunch pail, spilled all the sandwiches, but he caught his pie. What say, Mert? Oh, no answer, eh? Okay, I'll try the board of trade. <laughs> Wait a minute, McGee. Look at this. Ah, huh? what's the matter with you, Gildas? Look what I found in the almanac. What are you doing with the almanac? Well, the only thing there is to read around here except Black Beauty and the Peoria High School Annual for 1911. <laughs> well, what about the almanac, Mr. Gildersleeve? Well, listen to this. Huh? It's an article on contagious diseases. And it says that quarantining for measles is obsolete. Oh, I remember now. That's what the doctor told me over the phone. It's obsolete, and there's no getting around it. Oh, good heavens. I believe the man doesn't know what the word obsolete means. That's that it, I do, too. Obsolete means ob... ob... Ab oh, my gosh. I was thinking of absolute. I kill you! Good riddance, too. Come on, let's go to bed, dear. Okay. Oh, McGee! <laughs> that rat is what you want, Gildersleeve. My wife's gone away, and I can't get into the house. Oh, well, what do you want with us? I'm hungry. Oh. <laughs> Good night. Good night, all. <laughs> Speaking for the makers of Johnson's Wax and Johnson's Self-Polishing Glow Coat, inviting you to be with us again next Tuesday night. Good night.
Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me again next week when I'll feature more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer of Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.